Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 126 for the 2nd of December, 2013. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and my guest is Paul Ducklin. Welcome, Paul. Hello, Chester. Uh, starting out this week with some rather unfortunate news for users of Microsoft's Windows XP. There is a, a new zero-day vulnerability in the wild, meaning uh, this isn't uh, discovered by a researcher and privately disclosed to Microsoft. Um, but it, it, it's rather obscure. It's, it's related to the, the remote access and telephony components in Windows. Exactly what's this zero day about and what, what do people need to be concerned with? Well, it's a bug in a kernel driver that is called ndproxy.sys. As you say, that's related to the telephony API or TAPI. The good news is it's not a remote code execution. So the crooks can't use it just to jump into your computer from outside. Uh, but it's an elevation of privilege, and it doesn't just make you administrator, it makes you sort of the administrator's administrator. In other words, it actually lets you do stuff inside kernel mode. And as far as I'm aware, the only one sort of attack has been seen so far, which uses a an Adobe PDF reader uh, exploit to get in, and then uses this elevation of privilege to go up. So a little bit of defense in depth goes a long way. Uh, of course, defense in depth that involved not using XP at all because it's time to move would be the best solution you could possibly find. Yeah, I mean, this, uh, I mean, a lot of these XP machines, in my experience, have often already been running as administrator uh, just because of, uh, again, I think partly XP's age. Uh, you know, Microsoft bolted on a lot of the security components as they've gone along. I mean, today in Windows 7, we have user access control. We've got more group policy objects and things that allow us to allow users to install some types of software and not other types of software. With each generation of Windows, they've added on a lot of security features that make it easier to run without administrative privilege, um, but still grant specific privileges where necessary. And in XP, you know, it seems to me users often run as admin anyway. So you know, uh, all these reasons are great reasons to move forward. You're right. For for somebody to get hit by this, they'd have to have stuck with XP when really it's been time to move for, for some years. They'd have to have Adobe Reader that they hadn't patched, I think, from uh, right back to August. It's a kind of timely reminder that imagine that this had happened after next April. Well, that zero day would never get patched. As it is, we probably will see a patch to this quite soon or a fix it. But from next year, this kind of thing is just going to be open forever. But th there is a mitigation, at least, uh, in this case, and, and not to encourage people or give them hope after April of next year, but, you know, sometimes there is a mitigation, and if there is, that while there may not be a patch, there's a way to at least put some sort of a barrier in place that prevents you from being compromised. Although this one seems to have uh, a little more far-reaching implication than you'd rather have. Uh, how does it work? Well, it's a, it's a cunning plan from Microsoft, actually. Uh, what they suggest you do, and I've tried, it does seem to work perfectly well, is that you go into the registry and you tell Windows that this ND proxy driver service uh, is actually serviced by a driver executable that is null.sys, not the ND proxy.sys, which is the one with the bug. And null.sys is a sort of featureless driver that just exists for the purpose of existing like a blanking plate, if you will. And since most people aren't using dial-up networking anymore, it sounds like it shouldn't matter. The bad side, however, is if you're still living in the past with your VPN and using Microsoft's old-school PPTP VPN, 
ironically, that actually uses the telephony API for some reason. So you will break your old VPN. You should be able to get rid of PPTP if it's still enabled in your environment because it seems like there's widespread support now for both SSL and IPsec VPNs on mobile devices, uh, Windows XP, Forward, Mac OS X, Linux, whatever you might have. You could just read this story, even if it doesn't affect you directly, as a kind of wake-up call for why progress is important if you want to take security seriously. It's not just a scam by the vendors to sell you the latest version of the software. You know, in other news, this wasn't terribly surprising to me, but there was some rather large Bitcoin bank robberies. And I really enjoyed your story on Naked Security talking about these bank robberies. The deal is that when you are putting your Bitcoin data into somebody else's hands for them to store on their server, it is like giving somebody your wallet and saying, hey, you know, in a, I'll see you in a week's time. Give it back to me then. In the cases I wrote about, there were three Bitcoin banks or wallet storage or merchants, whatever you want to call them, in three different countries in Australia, China and Denmark that had only been going a few months each. They all had millions of dollars worth of Bitcoins entrusted to them and they all imploded and those Bitcoins are gone. And the people whose Bitcoins are lost, like as not, they will never see them again, gone for good. If you've ever doubted that Bitcoin might be attractive to cyber criminals. Well, a Bitcoin, which was worth what, a year ago, $10, is now worth more than a thousand US dollars. Believe me, the crooks are interested, very interested indeed. I think what's happening here is something that people just don't think about, which is the attractiveness of the concept of Bitcoin is this unregulated, there's no central authority no government can devalue it or manipulate it. It's, it's the freedom currency. It's, you know, all this kind of stuff. And that's absolutely true. That also means it's unregulated, unprotected. And when you give up all that regulation and you have your freedom money that, that isn't manipulated by the man, um, that also means that uh, if you lose your string of bits or you hand it over to somebody that's not trustworthy or doesn't have appropriate security processes, you're out of luck, right? Yes, there isn't that number on the back of your Visa or MasterCard, the uh, you know, 1-800 number that you can just call and say, oh, terrible thing has happened, I want to repudiate this transaction, and they go, sure. It's designed not to work that way in Bitcoin, and you know, that's a feature, not a bug. And so you need to think carefully about backing up your Bitcoin stuff. Well, I, you know, Bitcoins are a new concept, and maybe some people have now paid a rather large and public price for making mistakes and others can learn from that. I guess that's the moral of why we uh, include a story. Mind you, Chester, before we move on, there is a story that came out after these uh, three Bitcoin banks went bust of a chap by the name of James Howells. What he reckons is that he had 7,500 Bitcoins, if you don't mind that he'd mined in the early, early days back in 2009 when you could sort of do that with a computer at home. Uh, and he had these on a hard disk and he kind of forgot about them or so he says, and then he threw out the hard disk. So I think he still has the bitcoins, but he doesn't have the private key which would allow him to decrypt them. And the story says that he took a trip to the landfill and the guys reckon that from when he threw this disk out, that there is an area about the size of a football field that he would have to dig down to about three or four feet. 
and in that cubic wedge of stuff, he might find his hard disk. Well, if there's $7.5 million on the line, you might consider getting a bridge loan. Apparently he's considered that, and I think he's realized it is just too big a job. And of course, the disk could be broken <laughs> by the time he gets it back anyway. Yeah, and, and I guess you couldn't really use a giant electromagnet to find the disk, because that might defeat the purpose. Yes, or a hammer. <laughs> or a pick. <laughs> well, when talking, since we're talking about data security... There was a survey that uh, our own John Hawes wrote a story on naked security about in Europe saying that 24% of Europeans use different passwords for different websites. I actually found that number to be surprisingly high. So I'm wondering, are, are Europeans uh, smarter than the rest of the world? I mean, the 24%, of course, is a, a low number. But when I talk to people and say, do you use a different password for every website? I almost never hear the word yes. And, and I talked to security-minded individuals. What was your reaction? Well, I had quite the opposite reaction, Chester. I thought, oh, no, only 24% of them. But, you know, now I stopped to think about it. You may well be right. Maybe people worldwide are that careless. I suppose that one thing that the survey didn't take into account, and it's very hard to do in this sort of survey, is what do you answer if you've got KeyPass, LastPass, something like that, where you've got one master password? Technically, you've got one password to rule them all, haven't you? So there may be the, maybe the silver lining is that some people are using a password manager where they do have one password, but it has actually generated and fed each different website with a different good strength random password. But uh, having heard what you just said, um, I think I may be wrong. You know, you know that I use a password manager, and and uh, my experience with them recently is if you choose one, do choose one that offers you some sort of a, a two-factor authentication and, say, a, a set of one-time passwords to allow you to get in that you can print out and store somewhere safely at home were you to lose that uh, secondary token, whether that's your phone or a physical token or whatever it might be. Because if you are going to put all of your eggs in one basket, as it were, and have potentially a 100 passwords for different things stored in a one-pass, key-pass, last-pass, whatever... It isn't a particularly good idea to rely on one thing that could be keylogged that grants access to that entire vault. Indeed, we've spoken about two-factor authentication many times. It is somewhat less convenient than just having a password, but by golly, it gives you a lot of extra power against the crooks, because if they get your main password, then it's no use to them without the one-time password each go. So even if they log one of those, it doesn't get them in next time. So it's not foolproof, but it raises the bar, in my opinion, a lot. Yeah, you have to become a better and better fool to shoot yourself in the foot. Speaking of shooting yourself in the foot, uh, Drupal, a very popular content management system, or CMS, uh, had some vulnerabilities that were patched, uh, I guess, in a Debian project release this week that had some rather, I don't know if they're, I want to say entertaining or if I want to say disturbing release notes. Uh, yes, I wrote about this on Naked Security. I just like the way that the Debian release put it. The Drupal fix actually came out, to be fair, a few days before that. Uh, and there's this laundry list of multiple vulnerabilities. And it's just the one that caught my eye, because regular listeners will know this is something of a hobby horse of mine, is they messed up random number generating again. Yeah, you would think with something like random numbers that most 
computer programmers would be aware of how difficult random actually is. I mean, random is a, a hard problem to do programmatically. And lots of very smart people have put lots and lots of effort into creating libraries and centralized system processes to say, if you need random, rather than trying to reinvent this really, really complicated wheel, here's a thing where you can just ask us for some random, right? Yes, for example, on most Unix flavors, you can read a file called slash dev slash urandom. The thing is that any program that can open and read from a file, which is pretty much any program, should be able to get decent quality random numbers on Unix. It's like there's almost no excuse. And what the Drupal guys did is they, they decided to knit their own, and they tried really hard, but they used the wrong sort of random number generator. They used a thing called Mersenne Twister, and uh, many listeners may have heard of it. This is a very high-quality pseudo-random number generator for things like Monte Carlo simulations. And the authors make that clear. It generates really good random numbers really quickly, but not ones that can be used cryptographically. And the reason for that is that if you capture several hundred outputs in a row from, from the Mersenne Twister, you can reconstruct the internal state of the random number generating machine so you can basically clone the generator. Now that doesn't matter in a simulation where actually privacy and secrecy are not what you're after. The random distribution is what you're after. In cryptography, you need to deal with all of those. Yeah, and I mean, the crooks, unfortunately, have learned this lesson as well. I mean, we've seen in the past types of ransomware try to knit their own crypto, and they would often make a mistake that would allow our researchers to reverse engineer the mistake and maybe create a tool to unlock people's files and this type of thing. And unfortunately, guys like the crypto locker crooks are using Microsoft's crypto API so that there won't be any mistakes. Or if there are mistakes, they're mistakes that everybody in the world using Windows encryption is relying on. So if the crooks can do it, I would it'd be great if more open source projects could learn from the crooks and uh, do crypto right. Yes, that's a very sobering thought, isn't it? Listen, kids. Some things are hard in life. Don't, don't repeat others' mistakes. Well, that concludes Sophist Security Chat Chat, episode 126. As always, for the latest security news, you can visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Uh, for podcasts, you know, we've got our RSS feed. Uh, you can find us on iTunes. And, of course, for our, all of our podcasts or to listen through your browser, you can go to soundcloud.com slash And until next time, stay secure.